The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In the previous episode, we began to ask and answer various classic questions about death, hell, and the afterlife. We have also been looking at the proper answers to both based upon what God's Word, the Bible says, and comparing that to the typical answers and perspectives given by man and his philosophic worldview. Our goal is to provide correct definitions and a biblical worldview framework from which we can see more clearly what the arguments are, as well as where truth and reality lies. More importantly, our goal is to allow God's truth and reality provide tangible hope and joy for our eternal future for those who would by His grace be called to do so. In part one of this episode, we asked the question, what is the truth in reality about man's nature and existence? In answering the above question, 
we contrasted the philosophical outlooks between that of the atheist, secular humanist, the skeptic, and the biblical Christian. We also took a brief look at the heretical teachings of some who generally label themselves as Christian, but who ultimately have cultic and otherwise unscriptural beliefs. At this point, we will proceed forward with the classical mainstream biblical understanding and definition of what life is. By summary, man, who is the subject of this question, as stated, is a special creation of God. Man has a physical body, which because of sin and rebellion is subject to sickness, injury, aging, and death. Man also has a soul, or a spirit, which is eternal, but which also has been affected by sin and rebellion. Because of the fall, both the physical body, the soul, and or the spirit of man, and indeed all creation, is under the curse of sin. The punishment for sin is death. In this case, because man is conditionally flawed by sin and the punishment for sin is death, man is separated from God. Man cannot have fellowship with God because God is perfect and man is fallen. The law, i.e. the Ten Commandments, simply measure how far man has fallen. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and other passages reveal that all mankind is in fact fallen and that none is good. Man can improve himself on the scale horizontally, but regardless of how much improvement man makes, he is still fallen short vertically of the measure and stature of God's holiness and perfection. In the end, the physical and spiritual nature of man is in a terminal condition. Man's physical body will grow old, get sick, and die. Man's spirit or soul is eternal in the sense that it exists from the time God creates it and lasts forever. Man's soul or spirit never ceases to exist or to have consciousness of its existence. At the same time, man's soul or spirit has a condition which is relative to fellowship with its creator, God. As stated, as long as man remains in his condition of sin and rebellion as a result of the fall, man's soul or spirit is dead in the sense that man is separated from God, who is the source of life. In this situation, man cannot truly fathom God. Man is without true discernment, joy, contentment, hope, understanding, wisdom, life, fulfillment, etc., it takes a special act of mercy and grace by God to draw, to convict, to convert, and to justify man in order for that man to be given a new life and a new nature. In this event, God breathes his spirit into us and brings our spirit and or our soul to the newness of life. We are alive in Christ. We now have restored fellowship to God by his finished work and an abiding discernment, joy, contentment, hope, understanding, wisdom, life, fulfillment, which passes all understanding, 
In this situation, man's spirit and soul has restored fellowship and eternity will be spent in that fellowship with God and all of its benefits rather than eternally separated. With this summary, there are admittedly many questions which need to be answered regarding the realities of life, death, the intermediate state, heaven, hell, and the afterlife. At this point, it should be obvious that this series is unashamedly making the assertion that the only way that we may hope to know the answers to these questions is to look to God and to his word as the ultimate authority for truth. Having said this, before we proceed forward, it is important to acknowledge what we know of God's word, the Bible, as a literary device, as well as the various writers and the culture of their day. By doing this, we hope to alleviate certain pitfalls and assumptions which can hinder the goal of understanding what God is revealing. Number one, progressive revelation. First, it should be recognized that the Bible, God's Word, employs progressive revelation to communicate God's message of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. In addition, God's relation to man, God's nature, and character are also issues of progressive revelation. Man is not given complete and absolute knowledge of all things at the outset in Genesis 1. Like any child learning, God must first teach words, vocabulary, concepts, and ideas which he can communicate and then build to use to teach more abstract and complex ideas to man. 2. Limitations Man by nature is a finite being. Man is not God and can never be infinite like God. Man can use his imagination, man can dream and philosophize, but unlike God, man does not have complete and absolute certitude of all things everywhere in all time and space. Consequently, there is and remains a divide between God who is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, and man who may be really smart in many cases, but is ultimately very finite in all things. For this reason, because of man's limitations, communication between God and man is frustrated to the same degree that man has fallen in rebellion and finite. We should then expect that man's intellect and vocabulary would often fall tragically short in his ability to communicate and understand the things of God and eternity. 3. Culture As stated in the introductory episode entitled Questions About Contradictions, an understanding of the relevant culture in which the various writers of the Bible were moved by God to write is critical. Yes, they were ultimately used by God to reveal the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, at the same time, we should not assume that the writers were possessed by God or that God used them like a puppet and installed a computer keyboard in their mind, which he used remotely to input his information like a word processor and then pressed print. 
God chose and used each individual writer with their respective character, training, emotion, and history, good and bad, as well as the culture of the audience to which they lived and wrote to convey his message. Thus, we see writers often borrowing from the literature of their day, or from the past, or from other cultures in order to speak to an audience who could relate to that reference. It is not uncommon to forget this and to assume that every writer within the Bible is speaking to the same culture, whether it be the Jews, the Greeks, or the church, then or now. This is not to say that ultimate truth or reality is cultural, or that God himself is cultural. Instead, we must recognize that words change with time and culture. For example, if I were living in the 12th century and I did not show up for an appointment, I might write a letter and make the excuse saying, quote, unforeseen events have let me from being available, unquote. Today, we would be confused because the modern definition of the word, quote, let, unquote, means to allow or to permit something. However, in the 12th century, Old English, the word let meant to restrain. Thus, one word has a completely opposite meaning from one century to another. Likewise, the Bible also uses words and phrases whose meanings can and do change with time and culture. In this episode series, our goal, as stated, is to biblically define and understand various words and terms commonly used regarding death, hell, and the afterlife, which oftentimes cause some confusion. In specific... The remaining portion of this episode series will be to use the Bible in context to define the following 14 terms. If we do so correctly, we should see that the definitions will fit in the most logical and consistent way possible with how Scripture presents the overall subject of man's nature and destiny according to God. Here are the 14 terms for definition and discussion. 1. Death 2. The intermediate state 3. Sleep 4. Grave 5. Sheol 6. Hades 7. Gehenna 8. Tartarus 9. Paradise 10. Abraham's Bosom 11. Hell 12. Purgatory 13. Lake of Fire and 14. Heaven So, let's get started with number 1, Death. As with this and every definition to follow, we must escape from either end of the scale of liberal theologies ranging from the Pollyanna to the nihilistic. We must understand that the concepts, reality, and definition of all of our terms, including death, flow from the ultimate authority of God's revelation to man. 
Regarding death, the true context for death, both in its inception as well as its resolution, is to be found at the foundation of the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. Indeed, throughout Scripture we see that the word death and its variant forms, both in the Old and New Testament, can be seen to have an etymological consistency. A survey of the various usages of the word, however, revealed that there are about nine Hebrew words and about 14 Greek words, which are translated generally as death, die, or dead. For example, in the Old Testament, we find the various words and their definitions, starting with multh. M-U-W-T-H, which means to die, kill, slay, or have one executed, and is used some 835 times. The Hebrew word maveth, M-A-V-E-T-H, meaning death, dying, and is used 160 times. The Hebrew word gava, G-A-V-A, to expire, to die, to perish, ready to die, or give up the ghost, used some 24 times. Shadad, S-H-A-D-A-D, to spoil, despoil, devastate, destroy, or waste, used 58 times. Pegger, P-E-G-E-R, meaning a corpse or carcass, used 22 times. Rafa, R-A-P-H-A, meaning flaccid, feeble, weak, void of blood, or languid, used eight times. Nebella, N-E-B-E-L-A-H, meaning a carcass, corpse, or dead body, used 48 times. Ratsa. R-A-T-S-A-C-H, meaning to murder, slay, kill, or death, used 47 times. And finally, T-M-O-L-O-T-H, T-E-M-U-W-T-H-A-H, meaning death, used two times. In the New Testament, we find the following Greek words, Teletau, T-E-L-E-U-T-A-O, meaning die, be dead, to finish, bring, or come to an end, used 13 times. Thnesco, T-H-N-E-S-K-O, meaning be dead, die, or dead man, used 15 times. Necros, N-E-K-R-O-S, meaning dead, one that has breathed their last, lifeless, or deceased, used 132 times. Apothenesco, A-P-O-T-H-N-E-S-K-O, meaning die, be dead, at the point of death, or natural death, used 122 times. Hemithanes, H-E-M-I-T-H-A-N-E-S, meaning half-dead, used one time. Thanatu, T-H-A-N-A-T-O-O, meaning put to death or kill, used 17 times. Thanatos, T-H-A-N-A-T-O-S, meaning death or death of the body, used 119 times. 
Komeo, meaning sleep, fall asleep, or be dead, used 19 times. Synapothesco, S-Y-N-A-P-O-T-H-N-E-S-K-O, meaning die with, be dead with, die together, used three times. Apogonomai, A-P-O-G-I-N-O-M-A-I, meaning being dead, to be removed from, or depart, used one time. Toma, spelled P-T-O-M-A, meaning dead body, carcass, or corpse, used five times. Apokatino, A-P-O-K-T-E-I-N-O, meaning to kill, slay, or put to death, used 83 times. And finally, Anario, A-N-A-I-R-E-O, meaning kill, slay, or put to death, used 24 times. With this review, we can see that with the exception of one Greek word, the consistent meaning of the various words translated quote-unquote death, both in the Old and New Testament, are related to the cessation of life of the physical human body, either accidentally or intentionally. Having said this, one always needs to go beyond the immediate definition of any one word and look carefully at the immediate context of the sentence, the paragraph, the chapter, and the book in order to put things into perspective. Once we do this, we must allow the context, grammar, culture, and genre of the text in question to guide the interpretation. Having taken everything into consideration, we see that the words translated death can be used literally or they can also be used metaphorically. This being said, the overall understanding of death in its plainest, most often used sense refers to the physical death of man as a condition and result of sin after the fall. Having established the clear etymological definition for the Hebrew and Greek words for death, we can turn our attention to how these words are used in context within Scripture. In this case, the first time we see the word death is used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Quote, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, Thou shalt surely die. Unquote. Now, historically speaking, we know that both Adam and Eve did regrettably eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Further, we also know that neither Adam nor Eve died physically that same day that they ate. They, in fact, continued to live for several hundred years, produced children, and then physically died. As a result of this, we are forced to conclude that if God was being accurate, that the death he was referring to was something different or more profound than simply physical death. Since we know that fellowship was broken with God with this event, and that God is the creator, sustainer, and source of life in both the physical and spiritual sense, then it is possible that the death which God was referring to had both physical and spiritual implications. 
in this case, we know that up until Genesis 3, both Adam and Eve walked and communed in perfect fellowship with God in the garden. As soon as they took their eyes off God and placed their faith and trust in the vain hope of being like God through the knowledge of good and evil, they separated themselves from the covering grace of God and were now naked. By analogy, one could philosophically think of Adam and Eve like a child in the womb. Neither Adam nor Eve were at the stage capable of surviving outside the womb of God's abiding grace and fellowship. Both needed the umbilical cord connection of faith to God, who is the source of life. In this case, we can cast God in the role of the mother who warns her child not to cut the umbilical cord because to do so is death. Unfortunately, as with the case of our hypothetical child in the womb who cuts the umbilical cord when Adam and Eve, i.e. mankind, cut the cord of God's covering grace provided at creation, both Adam and Eve, i.e. mankind, died spiritually in their fellowship with God since they were no longer connected to God by the faith and trust which they had. From this point forward, throughout the Bible, and indeed everywhere, we experience people spiritually disconnected from God as well as physically dying. Whether Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, etc., each died, and when we find that record in Scripture, one of the above words meaning death is used. Consequently, we know that when the Bible is talking about death, there are two things which are in view. One, we have the unavoidable fact that for the present, all mankind is eventually subject to physical death, whether by sickness, by accident, by deliberate act of another, or by old age, everyone dies physically. Two, we have spiritual death. From the revelation of Scripture, we now know that every human has a soul or spirit which is eternal. Because of sin, man's spirit or soul is cut off and separated from God because of our nature of sin. That soul or spirit remains dead until such time as God is pleased by His grace to draw any given soul to repentance reconciliation, and renewed fellowship with him through faith in the imputed righteousness and finished work of Christ. When we are reconciled to God, God raises our spirit slash soul to the newness of life, and we are born from above. Having said this, we should be careful to point out that from the historical Christian perspective, death is not natural. The atheist, humanist, and secular position is that death is natural. Death is part of a cycle, or even an endless cycle, as in the Eastern religions, such as reincarnation. In Mr. Ash's paradigm, death returns man, or some part of man, to the cosmic machine of humanistic materialism. 
However, we must contrast such notions against Scripture, which reveals that death is in fact unnatural. Death is an intrusion brought about by sin and rebellion. Death is not a permanent, never-ending cycle. Death is temporary and will be conquered when Jesus returns. One provides a tangible hope and an eventual end and victory over death forever. The other simply attempts to explain and accept the process as an inevitable, unchanging, and and never-ending, or if it does end, it ends in silence, meaninglessness, and hopelessness. In the episodes to follow, we will continue our discussion of death, hell, and the afterlife with our next term, which is the intermediate state, as well as the other remaining terms in question. For the time being, this concludes our episode. Please join me for part three of this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I would encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Don't, don't